So we are in Psalm 81, and I, I want to begin by taking you back to 1988, the Summer Olympics. There was a sprinter by the name of Ben Johnson. Many of you might remember him. He won the 100-meter race in the Summer Olympics that year. He set a world record. And if you remember anything about Ben Johnson, one of the things that stands out immediately is the man... I don't know about now, but certainly then, he was a physical specimen. The guy looked as if he had been chiseled out of a rock. I mean, he was built unlike any athlete I had seen at that time. I was, I think, an eighth grader in 1988. I just remember thinking, man, look at that guy. He looks like a machine. He was something. But he tested positive for a synthetic steroid that helps athletes get bigger, faster, stronger, helps them to accelerate, which gives them a competitive advantage, and that's one of the reasons it's not allowed. And as a result, he had to forfeit his gold medal. Contrary to the thinking of many of God's people, and although I think this is subconscious, but I do think it's real nonetheless, I think subconsciously many of God's people have concluded that God is stingy, that God's criteria to administer blessings to people are so high and lofty and unrealistic, who can really attain that? God really does desire to bless his people. He absolutely does, and we're going to see that clearly today from Psalm 81. But many are questioning, even if it's in the recesses of our mind, okay, well, if that's true, if if God really does desire to bless me like you're saying, and like you're saying that Psalm 81 says, then where are those blessings? Why am I not experiencing them? Why do they seem so unreachable, so unattainable? Why? I mean, come on, you're show me the goods. If God can do anything, who can stop him from providing those? Isn't he? You just prayed and said that he's this great, mighty, omnipotent, wonderful God. I mean, he's all-powerful. Okay, show me the blessings, God. Where are they? What's stopping you? According to Psalm 81, the answer is very clear. Us. It's not an issue with God being stingy. It's not an issue with God's ability That's not what freezes or stops the blessings of God from flowing in and through our lives. That's not it. According to Psalm 81, it's us. I want to give you this statement that sets the tone for where we're going today. Listen, God's people often forfeit his blessings through rebellious disobedience to his word. That's the issue. And I will tell you, I have seen this movie so many times that I've come to a place where I have to contain myself from uh, not laughing to the point where it hurts because there are believers who will live in outright rebellion to God's word. They will intentionally disobey God's word and then legitimately question why God isn't blessing them. Subtly, they conclude, and again, I I know where that comes from. That comes from the flesh, and it definitely comes from the world, because both clearly tell us every day, 
That you should be able to think, speak, and do as you please, and God forbid that you should have to experience the consequences of your choices. God forbid that that you should have to somehow experience any chastisement. Somehow God should just overlook, excuse your blatant disobedience to his word. He should still bless you. He should still shower you with favor and goodness and all of this. Even though you have turned your nose to his word, even though you are deliberately living in disobedience to it, God should somehow still be obligated. One of the things that I've been very careful to teach and train my children is this. Choices are real, and so are the consequences. Like They must learn that. Listen, life is not fiction. Choices are real, and so are consequences. This is critical. So we begin in Psalm 81, verse 1. We look at the heading first. To the chief musician upon Giddeth, a psalm of Asaph. So this was a psalm of Asaph that was intended for Giddeth to administer or lead in corporate worship. Asaph was one of three chief musicians under King David. Psalms 50 and Psalms 73 through 83 are attributed to Asaph. And one of the things that you know, if you've studied any of the psalms of Asaph, they carry, as we'll see, a prophetic overtone, and they also focus on the sanctuary. So we keep going. Verse 1. Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon, in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. For this was a statue for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. So the name Asaph, I think I have it in your notes, it it means uh, who gathers together. So as one of David's chief musicians, Asaph would have been all about that. He would have been all about the corporate gathering of God's people for worship. The new moon was at the beginning of each month, and it was to be a time of praise to God's people, to him for his goodness and blessings in the tabernacle and, of course, later on in the temple. So these opening verses were a call to God's people to gather corporately to worship God. The trumpet that's mentioned in verse 3 has prompted many historians to appoint the occasion here for this gathering as the Feast of Trumpets, which was one of seven uh, feasts that the nation of Israel was to keep before God. It began on the first day of the new moon of the seventh month. Now, you remember from our time in Colossians chapter 2, and you get down to verses 16 and 17, and Paul talked about holy days. He talked about the new moon and he talked about Sabbath days and what he clearly said that those things were a show or a sign or a picture of things to come. 
And so that kind of sets the tone prophetically for what we're looking at in these opening verses. These opening verses had obviously a historical application, but there was a clear prophetic pointing in what we read. And again, keep in mind that Asaph, the name talks about, it means the center of it is gathering. Consider Hosea chapter 1, verse 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The day of Jezreel is the day that God will restore his people unto himself in the millennial land. It will be the day that Israel as a nation will embrace her Messiah that she rejected at the first coming. And given this particular time, they will be ready to do that because they will have been just spared from annihilation in the tribulation. So they will be, their hearts will be soft. Zechariah says that they will look upon him who they pierce and they will mourn because the math will settle in terms of, oh my goodness, We rejected him and crucified him, and they will mourn that, and they will finally embrace him as Messiah. Praise the Lord. So what you have pictured here is this gathering of a repentant Israel in the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 5 begins transitioning us to the heart of what God has to say to his people. Verse 5 This he ordained in Joseph for testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt, where I heard a language that I understood not. So Israel speaks at the end of verse 5 with the focus shifting back to her time in Egyptian bondage. All of the feasts pointed to Christ and ultimately find fulfillment in him. But historically, these feasts had a specific and practical place and meaning for the nation of Israel. They were to remember what God had done in terms of delivering them out of Egyptian bondage. And these feasts were a reminder to them historically of his faithful provision to them as his children or his people. And God clearly explains or expounds on this as he begins speaking in verse 6 throughout the rest of the chapter. And brothers and sisters, oh my goodness, I don't have a strong enough word to call everybody who is sitting here this morning, watching online or listening at another time to focus Like this isn't the time to be thinking about what you're going to do for lunch or what the rest of your day looks like or the rest of your week looks like. God is getting ready to speak. And what he is about to say, what he has said, you might want to listen. And I do mean listen. And there's only one way to listen when God is speaking. We drop the excuses. We, 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 we drop talk back. 
We, we drop the reasonings. No, no, no. God is speaking. That's it. So whatever he is saying, I'd better get. Verse 6. God says, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. Thou calledest in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Israel was burdened and in bondage in Egypt, the secret place of thunder, uh, would seem to point to the seventh plague that was issued in Egypt that included hell and thunder. But this too is our story, spiritually correct? Before we met Christ, before we were born again, before we were redeemed for all of eternity, spiritually speaking, we too were burdened and in the bondage of sin, right? This is our story. And like Israel, what did we do? We called out to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He responded and thankfully, praise God, he delivered us. Amen. And he has made us to sit together in heavenly places. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are eternally his. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. He not only answered our cry, but he answered and he blessed us beyond human comprehension. Praise God. Let me tell you, you never want to get to the place in your life where you take a mundane approach to your salvation. You never want to get to a place where that becomes status quo. No, 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 no. He did not have to do that. He owed me nothing. <laughs> He owed me nothing. I owe him everything. And what that should demand is that should demand from us praise and worship now and all of eternity, which should have been the case with the nation of Israel as well. But God's tone begins to change in verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me. Now, I don't know. I, I find this interesting. I understand what I just read. I think you do as well. I think my issue is, given all that God had done, is this even necessary? Did God have to say this? Did God have to say to his people, hear me? Did God have to say, look it, if thou wilt hearken unto me, what do you mean if you'll hearken unto me? I'm God. What do you mean if you'll hearken unto me? That should have been a given. It should be a given with us. Should God ever have to say to me, should God ever have to say to you, if you'll hearken unto my voice, God, let it not be a question. Yes, sir. I will hear you. I will listen to you. I will not tune you out. I'll not turn you off. You're God. 
You redeemed me. You saved me. You delivered me from an eternal hell that will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Yes, you've got my ears. Yes, you've got my eyes. Yes, you've got my mind. Yes, you've got my heart. Yes, you've got my attention. Yes, I will hear you. Not a question. Verse 9. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. No God but God himself delivered them from bondage. No God but God himself faithfully provided for them in ways where that was humanly impossible. No God loved them like the true and living God did. No God was faithful to them like the living and true God was. But what was their response? And I'll tell you, their response was the response of so many today. Look at verse 11. But my people would not hearken to my voice and Israel would none of me. Did I just read that? Is that really in the Bible? How did Israel ultimately respond to the mercy, grace, and love of God? They ignored him. They ignored him. But my people would not hearken to my voice. God, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> After all that he done. Speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, before they would fall to the Babylonians, Jeremiah 7, 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. went backward, not forward. We looked at Hosea 1.11 earlier. One of the things that Hosea goes on to say in that same book about God's people was that, listen, they were bent to backsliding. Bent to backsliding. Determined to have nothing to do with him. Southern kingdom, no different, and went backward, not forward. That should be sobering to us. If that's not heavy enough, they weren't done. They ignored God. 
But it goes next level in verse 11. And Israel would none of me. We don't want a relationship with you, God. We want nothing to do with you. One of the things that concerns me deeply, and it burns me deeply, is that so many of God's people are consumers. They're only interested in God from the perspective of what's in it for me. What can you do for me? What will you do for me? If you're not playing fair, if you're not allowing life to go how I think it should go, how I want it to go, go find somebody else to deal with. I'm not interested. Yeah, thank you for whatever you did on the cross, but that was 2,000 years ago. I've got issues and needs now. So if you're not willing to function at my service and be like a waiter where you take my order, and my order is I want happiness, I want money, I want comfort, I want convenience, um, if, if, if we can't have that kind of relationship, I'm not interested. Man, can someone deal with that? I, I don't know what that is. Please, sorry. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this morning that God is, this is what I'm saying, please, I, I am, I'm begging you because what we have here is God is, is taking a moment to reveal something to us about himself that you do not want to ignore. God is saying, I, I, I want to show you something about me that I, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, you, you want to get, you want to get. You ready? Here it is. God is not stoic and impersonal. God is not stoic and impersonal. And what that does is, one of the things that it does is, is that blows up the heretical doctrine of agnosticism that says if there is God, he cannot be known. If there is a God, he is impersonal, detached from humanity and his creation altogether. That's just been blown up. Why? Because if that was true, if God was some type of detached cosmic force, why would he ever care or be bothered with someone ignoring him or wanting nothing to do with him? That would make no sense if he's stoic and impersonal, if he's detached from his creation, if he's detached from humanity. Why would he care? Why would it bother him that people aren't listening to him? Why would it bother him that people want nothing to do with him? Makes no sense. 
Consider Hosea 11, verse 8. Let me just tell you, if I can put a plug in, if you're looking for a place to really get the heart of God, let me invite you to spend some time with God in Hosea. You see his heart. Hosea, verse 8, God says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? Mine heart. Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Ephraim referred to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north that represented Israel. And they were living in outright rebellion to God. And like Adma and Zeboam that were in proximity to Sodom and Gomorrah, the northern kingdom deserved to be annihilated, destroyed, wiped out. But God said, my heart, my heart was turning within me and my heart, my love for my people won't let me do it. My love won't let me destroy them even though they deserve it. They have worshipped false gods. They are given to idolatry. Hosea chapter 7, God said that their hearts were like an oven that were burning for idolatry. Give it to us. We want to worship false gods. We want it more than anything. Our hearts are like an oven burning for it. And God says, but my heart just won't let me destroy them. You think God doesn't care? You think God isn't moved when you want nothing to do with him? You think it doesn't bother God that you get up every day? And your first love is for this device? You grab this first? Or you reach for the remote control? Or you go days and weeks and you don't talk to him, you don't pray, you don't worship, you don't seek him, you don't desire him, you can take him or leave him, you don't think that bothers him. It does. It does. It does. Some of us hear this and we go, oh boy, Israel, man, they were really horrible in the Old Testament. How could they do that? Hmm. Boy, if we would just look in the mirror, <laughs> we're looking at ourselves. So what does God do? Verse 12, so I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. We find a statement in verse 12. 
that ought to send chills down your spiritual spine and your physical spine, spine, not spine. I find it to be one of, listen very carefully, one of the most chilling statements in the Bible. And let me just say this as we set this up. You and I, if we really understand this statement, you and I should prefer death with a smile on our face before this statement is ever said of us. You ready? I gave them up. I gave them up. Hmm. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. The reason that statement is so very chilling is because, listen, whenever God gives someone up, it always leads, not sometimes or occasionally, every time, it leads to severe chastisement. Every time. Every time. It leads to severe chastisement. When God says, okay, I'm going to give you up to what you really want. I'm going to let you indulge in the desires of your heart and your pride and rebellion and stubbornness. I will give you up to that. But be not mistaken. There will be a reaping for that sowing. And it will be severe. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. This is not God's desire for us. It wasn't his desire for Israel in the Old Testament. And it's not for his people today. Look at verse 13. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. Notice how that ends. I'm not an English major or I'm not a school teacher or anything like that, but what's the punctuation mark at the end of that verse? Exclamation point. God says, oh, they just would have listened to me. If they just would have listened and walked in my ways. You know, when we ignore God's word and want nothing to do with him, do you know why we do that? We do that because we think we've identified something or someone that is worthwhile. That can provide for us, do for us, what only God has promised to provide and do for us. But this thing or this person, they can do what God can't do. You are not only setting yourself up for heartbreak and misery and disappointment, but you're setting them up for that too. Because that's a lie. God knows better. 
And he also knows when we do that, you know what we do? We forfeit his blessings. We forfeit his blessings, which brings us to the blessings we forfeit through rebellious disobedience. And this will not be exhaustive. We could do an entire study on the blessings that we forfeit. These are just a few, but I think they are large enough (laughs) that they can keep you occupied for years. Just these three alone, I have no doubt, everybody in this room, everybody listening, would give their right arm for. Number one, look at verse 14. God said, I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. We forfeit the blessing of victory. We forfeit the blessing of victory. We often talk about the reality of spiritual warfare. Well, here's the bottom line. Anytime we're talking about war, by default... We're always talking about victory or defeat, correct? That's the outcome of war. There's victory or defeat. Hear me now. The bondage experience, I don't care what the bondage is, name it, is not an emotional or physical issue. It's not emotional, and it's not physical. No, no, listen. The bonded experience is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. And what determines victory or defeat in spiritual warfare, listen, is our response to the Word of God and God Himself. That is what determines victory or defeat when we're talking about bondage. Again, name the bondage. You go, well, it can't be that simple. Yes, it is. How can you be so definitive, Kenny? Because what did the Lord Jesus Christ say? In John chapter 8, verse 32, and ye shall know the what? Truth, and what does the truth do? It makes you, say it with me, free. free. What's the truth? But my people would not hearken unto my voice. This is what I'm saying. You got people who are living a nightmare when it comes to bondage, depression, and we can go on and on and on. But at the end of the day, here's what you find every single time. Eventually, I know what God has said, but that doesn't work for me. What else you got? And then they have the audacity in their heart and in their mind to look sideways at God. Oh, look at what God is doing to me. He won't answer me. He won't. Wait a minute. You have told God you're not listening. And you tell him every day you want nothing to do with him. That's wicked.
There are people in bondage, and they are locked down daily, not because they can't help it, or not because the devil is picking on them, but because they are ignoring God and his word. That's a recipe for defeat every day, every time. Verses 15 and 16. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat. And with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. You think God wanted to bless his people? (laughs) So much for God being stingy. So much for God making his blessings so unreachable, so untainable, so unrealistic. No, had Israel walked rightly with God, he would have brought their enemies into submission and Israel would have ruled forever. But that was forfeited because through rebellious disobedience, listen, we forfeit the blessing of prosperity. That could include financial blessings, but it is certainly not exclusive to that. Joseph prospered in Egypt as a prisoner. (laughs) So it's not just dollars and cents, but again, God wants to prosper us. But listen, hard-heartedness and pride tells God that he can't. When you harden your heart against God's word, and you tell God, I want nothing to do with you, heaven essentially freezes over you. Look at Haggai chapter 1, you'll see that. But look at God's heart toward his people in verse 16. He should have fed them also with the finest, the best. And with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. That's what you desire, isn't it? You want satisfaction. You want the best. Brothers and sisters, I can say to you, I can say to me, with 180% certainty, that if you're floundering instead of flourishing in Christ, that is on you, not him. That's not on God. God says, I want to give you the finest. I want to satisfy you. You ought to check out Psalm 107. You know what we read there? You know what the Bible says? It says that God satisfies the longing soul. You can go search far and wide. You can look for it in relationships. You can look for it in experiences, but you'll never find satisfaction outside of God himself. I'll just say this, if I can put a plug in for the marriage retreat, one of the hardest but most critical lessons that I had to learn as a husband, and I learned it at the five-year mark of my marriage, God whispered into my heart and into my mind very clearly, son, Lori is not in your life for fulfillment. She cannot fulfill you. She can't satisfy you. God says, that's my job. 
So as long as you're looking to her for fulfillment, as long as you're looking to her for satisfaction, you're just going to keep being frustrated for a long time. She can't do that. And that's why there are many dissatisfied (laughs) married people because they haven't learned that yet. No, the Bible tells us who's our portion? My, My spouse? Is that my portion? No. God is my portion. Not my children, not my career, not my car. God is my portion. Finally, and this is the exclamation point in God's desire to bless his people. Guys, listen, I, this is the verse. And many of you were wondering earlier, why did he skip verse 10? Because this sets us up for a bombshell of a close. Wow. If, you, if, if you're looking for a verse to take with you this week, if you're looking for a verse to take with you for the rest of your life, like, oh my goodness, like Psalm 8110, man, it's like, oh, God, you are good. Man, would you look at it with me? I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. (sighs) Listen. You can't substitute any name or thing in verse 10 that can say that to you. This is what God did with me at the five-year mark. Kenny, open your mouth wide. Lori can't fill it. I will fill it. I fulfill you. That's what I do. You know what this tells me? God has more blessings than we could ever handle. Did you know that? God has more blessings than you could ever handle. I'm like over time. I'm sorry. I got to wrap it up. This was my heart is bleeding. It's been bleeding for days here. Psalm 81. So good. Maybe it's just me. It's what I needed. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. You've been in the ocean. How much ocean can you handle? I mean, it is, that's God when it comes to his blessings. The issue was and is God's people are opening their mouths wide, but looking to the gods of this world to fill them. Through rebellious disobedience, we forfeit the blessing of abundancy. To be honest, this is, I get a little uncomfortable talking about prosperity and abundancy because, again, what we hear as Americans is dollars and cents. The Apostle Paul lived the abundant Christian life, but he was not rich nor overflowing with stuff. But he absolutely lived the abundant Christian life 
But it is biblically undeniable that Christ came that we might have life abundantly, John 10.10. 10. But that life does not exist, nor can it be found outside of him and his word. That's the issue. For some of you, it's time that you stop being a slave to the snooze button. And you stop bowing to your smartphone first thing in the morning. And good morning, America. And say, God, I think enough of you. I want you first. God, not because I want some tangible thing, but God, I just want you. And I can't ignore you. Then you'll see that victory that you long for, that prosperity, abundancy, it'll show up in your life. Let me close with this. When the dust clears, written on the spiritual tombstone of many believers will be this. Blessings forfeited. Blessings forfeited. Tragic. Not because God said so, or because God wanted it, but because they said, that's what I want. Lord, soften hearts, open ears. Help us to see the dangerous ground we tread when we ignore you and want nothing to do with you. Truly, we forfeit blessings. Amen.